Father, once again, we come to your word. We worship you in so many ways. There, we've just heard the choir lead us to worship you with the song 10,000 Reasons. And we look forward to 10,000 years and forevermore of being in your presence, separated from even the presence of sin, where we can see you as you are, because we'll be like Christ. You speak to us in 10,000 different ways through your word. We worship you through song. We can worship you through giving. We can worship you through all sorts of ways. But when you call the corporate body of believers together, the overarching way in which you are worshipped is through the preaching and the receiving of your word. That is what we see over and over again in Scripture. I'm reminded, Father, of Ezra and Nehemiah and how they opened the Word of God to the people who hadn't heard it in so long publicly read. And there were tears and just tears of thankfulness and repentance and humility. Father, I'm, I think about how they translated it to give the sense to the people. They explained what it meant. Such an awesome responsibility you've charged me with today. Father, help us not to take your word for granted. I pray over the course of the next few minutes that you will speak through your word, that your people will hear your voice and follow you. Not so that Red Branch Baptist Church can brag about what a great revival they had. Not so that they can, can, can say, I went to all five nights. Not so that they can say anything about themselves, but to God be the glory, great things He hath done. And this we will do if you permit us. We ask this by your grace and for your glory. Amen. Well, one more time, Luke 15, Luke 15, where we see what real life revival looks like through a story Jesus told, a parable of the prodigal son. But I hope by now you're beginning to see that that's a misnomer. It really should be a parable of a father and two sons because this parable is about all three. It takes looking at all three to see how the gospel unfolds. All, all we need to do that, uh, and I should say, and we need to do that, we need to see how the gospel unfolds because while this service may not be the end of revival in your heart, the minute you stop to grasp, the, the minute you stop grasping the, the gospel and the enormity of what Christ has done for you is the second revival ends. And we see the gospel truth in this story. Of course, these are not real people. Jesus is telling a story. It is a parable meant to illustrate for those hearing it the saving truth. It's Jesus' response to the scribes and Pharisees. Remember, they were what? They were grumbling, murmuring, because the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Him 
listening to him. This man receives sinners, they said with scorn. He eats with them. They couldn't fathom how a teacher or any respectable Jew for that matter would do such a thing. So early in this story that Jesus told, we saw what a sinner looks like. And of course the prodigal son is the picture of that sinner. He is wasteful. He is immoral. He's ungrateful. He does not appreciate what his father has given him. He's rebellious. He's selfish. He demands his share of the estate while his father is still alive. He willingly goes as far as he can away from his father. He willingly makes himself unclean, going to a Gentile land. He adds to his shame by but when a famine comes after he has spent everything he had, he decides to hire himself out, attach himself to that land, fix his problems himself, and even handle swine, feed them. He became as repugnant as he possibly could to the Jewish mind. He's what a sinner looks like. Then we saw what, a, what repentance looks like. And by the grace of God, what did we see? Verse 17, he came to his senses. He remembered how generous his father was even to his hired men. They had how much bread? More than enough bread. So even though there was no way he would ever be received back as a son, he returned so that at least he could live. At least he could be a hired man. So he was humbled. He realized that no amount of whatever he did to try to make up for what he had done could save him. No amount of what he did would ever be enough. He was completely dependent upon the Father's grace and mercy and he went back. And then we saw what forgiveness looks like. Because the Father seeing his Son in the distance ran. Despite how egregiously... You know, we sang earlier... To God be the glory. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. Think about the prodigal son and how egregiously he had sinned against his father and yet his father was quick to end his shame. He runs to him. He, he clothes them in his robe, his righteousness. A picture of how God clothes every sinner who repents in his righteousness. Forgiveness. And the celebration was on. There's joy in heaven when even one sinner repents. And there was joy here and the parable wasn't over. Last night we saw what self-righteousness looks like. Because remember, there's two types of sinner in this parable. The worldly sinner, of course, is exemplified by the prodigal. The older son, though, is a sinner too. He is a picture of those grumbling scribes and Pharisees. He's a picture of, <clears throat> of religious Israel. He is dutiful. He looks the part. He does what he's supposed to do. But he has no real relationship with his father. He's done nothing in the past to intercede with his brother. Didn't try to stop him from ruining his life. He's done nothing to try to preserve his father's honor. And now that he has heard his brother is back and his father has received him back safe and sound, wholly, completely, he becomes angry and is not willing to go in. He was self-righteous. He thinks himself better than it all. You know, he, he's the kind of guy who appears to have everything together on the outside, 
but on the inside, he's full of anger, he's full of unhappiness, a lack of fulfillment, and we're not done seeing that tonight. So one more time, let's read the whole thing, and then let's wrap it up. And he said, A man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent, he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, but no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven... And in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, For so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him, and he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice. For this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Again, it should be clear, I hope it's clear by now, there are two sinful sons here, not one. The prodigal, again, the worldly sinner, the one who's not religious, the one who could take religion or leave it, or or really he, he just usually doesn't even want anything to do with it. Maybe he is religious, but his religion isn't in any way tied to the real one true God. But then the older brother, he is superficially religious. He is the professing believer in this case. The self-righteous Jew, I guess you could say. The scribe, the Pharisee. The one who does his best to look 
pleasing to God on the outside. The one who does his best to look the part. The one who Jesus will say in, in Mark 7, he worships God with his lips. He praises God with his lips. He's quoting Isaiah, but his, his heart is what? Far from him. Far from me. And the Father is clearly God. It is, it is God in Christ. It is God whose love for His sons and daughters overcomes their sins. It is God who saves all who repent and believe. It is Jesus who... who God clothes us in Jesus' righteousness. He brings us into everlasting, joyous celebration. And based on what we just read, the greatest thing about all of this is that God loves both kinds of sinners. God saves both kinds of sinners. He extends His grace to the worldly and to the religious. He loves all kinds. Now picking up where we left off, the party is on, the celebration has started, the son, the older son, finds out. And it's really his reaction to the news that becomes the impetus for this entire parable. He's angry, he's indignant that his father would extend grace to the ungrateful son, that his father would embrace and, and forgive this wicked son. And that's the Pharisees. Jesus was showing the scribes and Pharisees. He's saying, look in the mirror, guys. You're grumbling because I'm with these tax collectors and sinners. Look in the mirror. This is you. They were indignant because Jesus would dare associate with the wicked. They had no concept of God's grace. They gave so much attention to how to properly be clean. They didn't understand what it meant to be clean. The sacrifices to them were mere religious exercises. They, they knew in their heads that they were about atonement and about forgiveness and about God's justice and about God's righteousness. All of the, the Old Testament sacrifices point to those truths, how God rights our wrongs, but they didn't know it in their hearts. To them, you had to be a good Jew, and being a good Jew is what they said it was. Very convenient for them. You had to do, you had to work, you had to earn to please God, but really it was to please them. Keep the law, uphold the traditions, do the things to look the part. Do the things the way we say they're supposed to be done. That was the religion of the scribes and Pharisees. The religion of those who are self-righteous, who profess a belief in God, but don't subject himself or herself, because it can work both ways, either gender, young or old. They don't subject themselves to the Lordship of Christ. These are the type of people who add on requirements to God's Word. And I'm sad to say this happens in a lot of churches. It's a plague upon a lot of churches. They add along requirements about what you're supposed to look like if you're going to be a Christian, except those requirements really aren't found in God's Word. That was the older brother here. He had no thought of grace. He had no praise for the mercy of his father. He wasn't willing to go into his father. He's not willing to humble himself and go into the celebration. He's not going to shame himself the way his father shamefully forgave his brother. He's better than that. 
And so you've got one son who realized how much of a dumpster fire he had made his life and he moved back in repentance in the direction of the father. And you have another son who's been in proximity to the father the whole time, but he won't go into the celebration. And when the younger son was in the distance, the father ran to him. And now we see that when the older son won't go in, the father goes out to him too. The father came out and began, what? Pleading with him. Take note of that. The older son's will was determinedly not to go to the father. So the father took the initiative to come to him. Again, the father is again doing the work. The father took it upon himself to run to the prodigal and extend grace. And now he's going to plead with the older son too. And that is such a picture, beloved, of the call of the gospel. How vivid a picture this is of Acts 17.30 where Paul says in Athens on Mars Hill that God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent. All people everywhere. Because the gospel is the only means by which anyone is saved. Jesus is the only name under heaven by which men can be saved. Acts 4.12 Jesus is the way, not a way. He's the way. He's the truth. He's the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. John 14.6 And so here is the Father, God in Christ, running to the repentant prodigal, who in humility thankfully receives the grace of His Father, is willingly lets the Father clothe Him in His righteousness and comes back into His house. And on the other hand, the Father is coming out and pleading with His older Son who refuses to come in. The one who appeared to be with the Father the whole time. The one who would have had the best knowledge of anyone, supposedly, of the Father's goodness and the Father's grace and the Father's will. And yet He rejects the Father's grace and mercy. He rejects the Father's love. He refuses to come in to where there is joy. He is being called. He's being pleaded with. But He won't come in. He doesn't think He needs to repent. He doesn't think He needs to repent, so He won't repent. He will not humble Himself. What is it Jesus says? Matthew 22, 14. Many are called, few are chosen. The gospel command is for all, but not everyone will come in. The gospel command is for all, but the older son is showing himself to be what Ephesians 2, 1 says, every sinner is before Christ saves him. Dead in his trespasses and sins. Jesus is presenting the older son as an object lesson for the scribes and Pharisees. And tonight, he is an object lesson for anyone here or anyone who will ever listen to these words of how all those who remain obstinate, anyone and everyone who is just superficially Christian, they remain in their self-righteousness. He was telling them, you 
have to come in. You have to humble yourself. You have to repent. You have to realize the Father's house is the only place of salvation. It's the only place this celebration takes place. John 6. Jesus is saying in John 6, You have to take all of me in. My flesh, my blood, my life. I'm your only way. John 6.63 It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But, John 6.64 There are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. For this reason Jesus said to them, No one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. And as a result of this, many withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. John 6.66 The scribes and the Pharisees claimed to love and serve and worship God. They could listen to the words of Jesus with their physical ears. But they weren't about to take Jesus in. They weren't about to hear Him with their spiritual ears, with their hearts. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. They were as dead in their sins as the prodigal son was before God saved him, before his father rescued him. They were alienated from the life of God. They weren't about to walk with Jesus. Like the older son, they weren't about to come in to where he was. They would persist in their religion. They would persist in doing the things they say you had to do to look holy. Because they assumed if we looked the part, Well, we have Abraham for our father. God's pleased with us automatically. And today, folks, there are millions of people like this on church rolls. I say that as a Southern Baptist pastor who belongs to a denomination that counts 15 plus million people on their rolls, but only a third of them can be found on any given Sunday in the church. In the meeting place of the church, that is. They persist in their religion. They're convinced of their own self-righteousness. But they don't take Him in. And that's why Jesus would later say to these scribes and Pharisees in Matthew 23, I think it's verse 11 or 12. You can look at it later. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. These were the people that Jesus said, you make people twice a son of hell as yourselves. Twice as much sons of hell as yourselves. And the father is pleading with the older son. And that word pleading is from a Greek word, parakaleo. Which is important because the noun form, pardon me for the Greek grammar lesson real quick, but the, the noun form is parakletos. And if you've ever heard the Holy Spirit described as the paraclete, that's because that's the word that's used to describe the Holy Spirit by Jesus. 
He's the helper. He's the paraclete. He's the the helper. He's the, the one who comes alongside of us to help us. Jesus said, it's better that I'm going away. I'm going to send my helper. The Holy Spirit is the one who indwells every person who trusts in Jesus to help us along. Christ is in us through His Holy Spirit. And here was the Father desperately trying to come alongside and parakletos His Son. Help His Son. Come alongside His Son and try to plead with Him and try to lead Him to do what He needed to do. The thing He must do, which is come in. It's a picture of God extending His gracious call even to those who snub their noses at Him as hypocrites. He extends that same gracious call to every hypocrite today. How though did the older son respond? Look at verse 29. He answered and said to his father, Look! And stop right there. He responds very quickly. He doesn't take a beat. He doesn't take a breath. He doesn't take a moment to consider what his father is saying. He doesn't use a title. He says, Look! He's disrespectful. Doesn't address him as father. Because at this point... You know, they have no real relationship, but it's like he's making that official here. I'm not going to address you as father because the truth is, I don't hold you in that respect. So look, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. You know, that's what the self-righteous almost always do. They go into defense attorney mode. It's their first defense when they're confronted with their sin. They begin to recount all the things that they have done. They recite their religious resume. All the things they've done. All the things they do. All the things they still do, by the way. And they deny they're in the wrong. And this particular older son says, I have never neglected a command of yours, which is an audacious thing to say, by the way. Had he really never neglected one of the Father's commands? How about come in? The self-righteous, though, that, that's their attitude. Oh, they may say something self-effacing like, I know I'm not perfect. I, I know that I make mistakes sometimes. There's no real humility there. They don't feel they need to be forgiven. They're legalist because... You sin in ways they don't, but they're not going to repent of their own sins. And that's the older son. This older son is the very picture of legalism, of self-righteousness, the very picture of pride. For so many years I have been serving you. He actually uses the word for slave. Not the word for servant that's been changed to deacon in our English translations. He views himself as a slave in a bad way. To his father. He's been serving his father, but because he had to, not because he wanted to. Not out of love, not out of, of thankfulness for his father, not to honor his father. He's been serving his father because that's what he's supposed to do to look like someone who honors him. 
And there was no joy in it for him. The truth of the matter is, his younger brother had been much the same way, but at least his younger brother, way back when, when he left, made it public. He, he said it out loud. But the older son continued to play his part. While the younger son was outwardly sinful, he this whole time has been inwardly sinful. Hateful. Bitter, maybe even more bitter than the younger son. Angry. He never outwardly neglected a command of his father. He just resented on the inside that he had to do anything his father asked him to do to begin with. It's very sinister. It's The hypocrisy, the gall of the older son here is incredible. He's not the bad guy. The father is the one in the wrong. Like the scribes and Pharisees' view of Jesus. It's the Father who is in the wrong here. It's the Father who's the one who's sinned. It's the Father who's the one who's a blasphemer. It's the Father who has violated the customs. It's the Father who has shamed and profaned Himself. And then the older son takes it a step further, blaming the Father. You have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. He acts as if his life has been so terrible. As if his father has been so awful to him. As if his life has not been filled with access to the father's goodness and generosity. He's never been given a young goat to celebrate. Note, with my friends. The father and the younger brother wouldn't even be invited to his celebration. There's no real relationship there. He, he wouldn't have his shameful father or his shameful brother at his party. It would be him and his friends People who thought like him. People he deemed desirable. You see, now it's the older son, the older brother, who wants his father dead. But he's not done insulting him yet. Verse 30, But when this son of yours came, language as if to say, I'm not your son anymore. He is. But when this son of yours came, he won't even call him his brother. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Let me paraphrase it. You wouldn't give me the good son, the young goat. You give him the disgraceful son, the fattened calf. He is dripping with enmity. He is dripping with hate. He has taken off his mask. He's done playing nice. He's done pretending to love and honor his father. And you see, friends, that's why Jesus was telling this. To expose the hypocrites. To unmask the scribes and Pharisees for who they really were. Bitter because Jesus was receiving sinners. And they would not admit that they too were sinners. They wouldn't come humbly to Him. They wouldn't come and confess their sins. They wouldn't repent of their sins. Their hatred of God was exposed here. They professed to follow God, but really they were rejecting God in Christ. The older son, friends, is them. The older son is what rejecting God looks like. On the outside, the scribes and Pharisees had it all together. But on the inside, they're never satisfied. Anger, unhappiness, 
They need to be praised. They need to be vindicated. They need to be affirmed. Sometimes they need to be in control, dictate terms. We talked about this some last night. They sometimes need to feel superior to everyone else. In fact, that's how it is a lot of times. But so that they don't feel the need to repent. That was the older son and that was them. And on the inside in the father's house, there's this, this great celebration of joy. Honoring the Father for His grace, His compassion, His forgiveness, His mercy. On the outside, outside of true fellowship with the Father, there's grumbling and self-righteousness and pride and enmity. And they're plotting for how they can get their vengeance. Ultimately upon God. Ultimately upon Jesus Christ. But still... Despite that, look at verse 31. The father's love is so strong. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. Now, something that's not caught in the English translations there, let me do one more. I think this is my last one of Greek for the night, okay? Earlier in this parable, when we've seen the word son, it's been a word, huios. But here in Greek, it changes. He says, techna, which is another word that can be translated son, but it's, a very, it's very much a more tender word. He's, it's like, my boy, my boy, you have always been with me. It's tender, it's endearing. The father, despite what the older son is saying to him, is taking his pleading to the next level. Such is his love and compassion that though his son has attacked him, the father still desires his son. The father knows there hasn't been a real relationship with him. He's been there. He knows there's not been a real relationship, that it's been superficial. And the Father has been available to him all this time. And he's letting him know, I'm still here. You've always been with me and all that is mine is yours. You've always had me and all that I have is always available to you. But it will never be yours, older son, because of you. It'll never be yours because you earned it. It'll never be yours because you're better than your younger brother. It'll never be yours because you're better than the Gentiles or the tax collectors or the sinners or the people who don't go to church. It will be yours because of me. And all you have to do is come really genuinely to me. We had to celebrate and rejoice We had to celebrate and rejoice, verse 32, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. We had to celebrate because that's what brings me joy. This is what brings joy to the Father when even one sinner repents. No matter how bad that sinner has been, no matter what that that sinner's past or present for that matter looks like, No matter how obstinate, no matter how rebellious, no matter how self-righteous, no matter how outwardly good, no matter how outwardly bad, no matter how hateful, openly, no matter how hateful, inwardly, when even one sinner repents, there's joy in heaven.
So Jesus will always receive sinners who repent and come to Him and listen to Him. He will always do this. And there will always be celebration for the lost being found. There will always be celebration for the dead being raised. There will always be joy for the Father who takes joy in saving those who come to Him. He extends to you His grace. He gives you what you don't deserve. His mercy. He doesn't judge you like you do deserve. He wraps His arm around you with compassion from the deep part of His being and clothes you with His own perfection, with His own righteousness. You know what's weird about this parable though? You know what separates this parable from all other parables? Including the two that you find earlier in this chapter. We hear how the shepherd found the lost sheep and celebrated. And we read about how the woman found the lost coin and threw a party. But in verse 32, that's it. That's the end of the parable. It's like it's cut off. Jesus doesn't give us the ending. He doesn't give the scribes and Pharisees the ending. Jesus knows how it ends. But it's almost, you know, when I was growing up, there were these choose-your-own-adventure books. I used to love them. You read... And then you get to the end of some page and it says, you get to decide what happens next. You you go to page 49 if you want this to happen. If you make this such and such decision. You go to page 58 if you want to make that such and such decision. It's almost like one of those books. It's almost as if Jesus was leaving the ending up to the scribes and Pharisees. The fairy tale ending would be something like this. The, The older son saw how much his father loved him. And he repented. And he cried on his father's shoulder as his father practically carried him into the party where the celebration became all that much more joyous. And they lived happily ever after. That's the Disney version. I saw somebody in here last night, maybe it was the night before, with a Star Wars shirt. On the Star Wars version, for nerds like me, Scott, is that they all stood around at the end looking at each other and smiling, and then the music just... And then wait for episode whatever. This isn't a Disney movie. That's not how it ended. The scribes and Pharisees chose another adventure for themselves. Their ending was that the older son heard what the father said and being so filled with anger toward him, put him to death for all to see. That's what they decided to do. Because the father in this parable is God in Christ. And it's Jesus who they handed over to Pilate, who handed him over to be killed on a cross. Jesus, who knew no sin, bore the full fury of God's holy wrath 
against all sin for all time for all who will ever believe. All who will ever come into the party. All who will ever repent of their sins and entrust everything to Him. Of course, Jesus rose from the dead on the third day as well because death could not hold the Son of God. Jesus rose victorious over sin and death so that all who are in the party, all who are in the Father's house, the party never ends but goes on everlasting life, everlasting joy, everlasting celebration. Life abundantly to the fullest forever. And so the question we come to as we close our study of this parable, the question we must consider if we want real revival in our lives or in our families or in our, in our churches, is who are you in this story? Who are you? Are you the younger son? Are you the prodigal still out in the world bringing shame upon yourself by indulging in the desires of the flesh? Or maybe you're the prodigal who has come to his senses, praise God, and repents and comes back to the Father and is received back completely, brought back into the Father's house as his son, as his daughter. Or are you the older son? The older brother. Religious, dutiful, moral, but without a real relationship with God. I cannot implore you enough, friends, no matter who you are, no matter who you were, no matter what background you came in here with, I cannot implore you enough to consider yourself before the throne of God. Because many will come to Him on that day and say, Lord, Lord, did we not do this? Did we not do that? And He'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because we had no real relationship. Simply saying and doing Christian church things is not sufficient. Christ did not die on the cross so that you could look the part. Christ died to save sinners. Christ died to bring those He saves to the Father. And if you know all of this and still refuse Him, listen to what Hebrews 6.6 6 says, It is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. What that means is there's not another Messiah coming. Jesus is the only one. So will you continue to put Him to open shame or will you crucify the flesh and come to Him? Will you crucify to yourself the Son of God again and again and again and then even no matter how religious you look on the outside, it will end in hell? The penalty of eternal destruction or will you come to Him who's ready to receive you. This man receives sinners. Humble yourself. And don't exemplify in your own body what rejecting God looks like. Humble yourself and repent and come in to the celebration.
come to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those here who know you. And I pray that we would never give in to the temptation to fall back on all the things we do because we love you and say, that's what's earned our favor before you. Father, I pray that we might never lose sight of the fact that our righteousness is not found in our collection of good works. Rather that be church attendance, church membership, whatever. Father, our righteousness is only found in Christ. And I pray for those who have found that righteousness, who, have, who you have clothed in your righteousness, never to fall back, never, to, never to, to fall into the temptation to become like a scribe or Pharisee. We must live according to your word, completely holy because we belong to you. I also pray, Father, for the one who may be doing all the things on the outside and may have a lot of people fooled, but in their heart they know they don't have a real relationship with you. And no amount of being here on Sundays, no amount of being at a revival, no amount of giving an offering is going to make a hill of beans worth of difference, Father, if they don't repent of their sins and truly entrust themselves to Jesus Christ. And so I pray for any like that today because, Father, there are so many, I believe, struggling with that. And I pray for those who may be like the younger brother, who may be right now wasting their lives. They're here by your grace tonight to to hear the truth spoken. I pray, Father, that you might breathe life into them. Lord, make their dry bones alive. Your will be done. May no one here be ashamed to confess their sins. I pray no one would walk out these doors too prideful to admit their need for you. Send revival, Lord. Start with me. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.